I've, um, I've been speaking about mental health uh, for, for quite a while, and particularly recently I've been talking quite a lot about stigma uh, around mental health, and I go around and I talk to people and um, I discuss the stigma and I get really upset about the stigma around mental health, I think it's really awful. Um, and then you stop sometimes, you think, well, am I actually helping this or am I actually making this worse? Because I don't think I talk about my own mental health. And by, by doing that, does that not mean I'm just carrying on the stigma? Because if I can't talk about it and I'm asking other people to talk about it, doesn't that just make, it makes me kind of hypocritical, doesn't it? I don't mean to be not a bad person. It's just not that easy. And so, yeah, that, that, that got me thinking. That's why I ended up writing to, to Howard. So I thought about my, my own mental health and my experiences. Um, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm going to try and talk about. Um, one of the first things I want to say, and as I said this, people who've been to, to things that I've done before will know, I always think it's, it's difficult. We talk about health, and people don't think about mental health and physical health in the same way. So the example of that would be, if you speak to someone who's perhaps uh, had a life-threatening physical illness like cancer, and they uh, recover from it, quite rightly we have a celebration. We talk about how pleased we are that they've recovered from a life-threatening illness. It's great. I work in mental health most days of the week, and we deal with people who've got life-threatening illnesses. Depression, anxiety, and loneliness, and things like that are life-threatening. They can certainly cause life-threatening situations. When people have a recovery from that, I don't think we celebrate it in quite the same way. I don't think we need to celebrate it in quite the same way, but I don't think we even think about celebrating it quite the same way. And there's other things around kind of medical, uh, sorry, mental and physical health that I don't think we think of in the same ways. And that's part of the stigma that I try and talk to people about. But like I say, one of my problems is that I think I don't help the stigma when I don't talk about my own experiences of, of mental health. And I think sharing actually is, hopefully it's a good thing for other people to hear, but I think actually from a selfish point of view, the experience I've had recently is sharing things is quite good for you as well. I think one of the worst things you do is not share stuff. You build stuff up, you keep it inside, then it just gets worse. And so one of the things that I really feel quite strongly that's helped me in the last few years is talking to more people about things that I found difficult. Because finding life difficult is just part of the human condition. There's nothing unusual about finding things tough. In fact, it's a good thing in lots of ways. If you've got a job interview and you're not nervous, you probably don't care about it, so you're probably not going to get the job. Nerves help. Worry helps. There's good reason to be worried sometimes. So it's not a bad thing. And I think one of the things we need to help people to understand as well is that mental health is just like physical health, it's a continuum. So anxiety about a job interview or crossing the road when there's no regular crossing is on the continuum in the same way as having a sore back is on the continuum with other things in, in physical health. So I think one of the things around stigma is helping people to understand that. And one of the most important things is people sharing their experience because I think that makes it better. Um, so I guess the question, the first, the first question I've got, and we'll see if we get any participation, but we'll see. Um, to make things really simple, I don't want to dumb it down, but has anybody ever worried about something? You had a worry or concern? But yeah, put your hands up if you've had a worry or concern about anything. If you haven't put your hand up, you're probably not, not, not a usual normal sort of person. Everybody's, hopefully everybody's worried about something. Have you ever worried about something? And thought when you walk into the room that nobody else would worry about the same thing that I worry about. Anybody done that? People? Anybody else? So what I mean is, yeah, you think about something, you think I'm worried about this, but I don't think other people worry about the same things that I worry about, or that one thing. Has anyone ever done that? I've done that. And then when you meet somebody and they say, 
at the blue or you read the newspaper or hear on the television, they worry about that same thing. It makes you feel a bit better. Is that true? True to say? So I think that's just sharing. That's, that's, that's kind of where I came from. And I, I've been very bad at that throughout most of my life, sharing things that I find difficult, things that I find hard. And I, I want to suggest that sharing is a good thing, but it's really difficult. And I want to suggest that shame is one of the most difficult emotions that there is. One of the most destructive emotions that there is. I don't know if anybody agrees with that. I, I've always found it that when you feel shame about something and you don't talk about it and no one makes you feel like they would feel shame or worry about the same thing, that's one of the most destructive emotions. Feel it in there, it builds up and it gets worse. And I've, I've found in my life not facing things that I feel ashamed of, even if I didn't have a reason, even if most rational people wouldn't think that's something you need to be ashamed of. It doesn't matter actually what you're worried about or what you're ashamed of. It doesn't matter if actually that's appropriate according to other people, it only matters what it feels like to you. So if you feel that shame and you don't think anybody else would feel that, that then becomes quite a toxic kind of mix. Is that, is that fair to say? So if you've got shame inside and feel it, you think, I don't think other people feel the shame. And if other people, you then think, if other people knew what I think or feel, they'd think I was a bad person. And that's an even worse situation. Is that fair to say? So you've, you've got something you're worried about, and you found perhaps there's something that you've done or something that you didn't do, something that you've got, something that you you know, meant to do, and you feel a bit shame about that, and then you think, not only do I feel shame, if someone knew what that thing was, they'd think I was the worst person. And that's quite a toxic mix. And shame is something, an emotion that I've found really difficult in various sort of settings, and it's something I've run away from really quickly. And, or oh, I have always tried to avoid, I'm not to say that I don't ever do it now, but um, certainly over the years it's, it's served me a lot. So does all that, that make sense? If you worry about stuff and you don't talk about it or you don't hear that other people worry about the same stuff that builds up and I think, and probably there might be a different emotion, but for me, shame is the most awful of the emotions because it's the one that I think is the most destructive. It leads to, to lots of awful things happening. Um, and I think not only, um, if, you, if you have shame building up and you don't hear somebody else talk about it, you don't think that that stops you being a bad person, so you carry on thinking that, you start to build an emotional time bomb. Is that, a, is that a reasonable way to describe it? If you've got a build-up of shame, but you're building a bit of an emotional time bomb. I don't want to kind of use language, it's not just over the top. I don't want to be bombastic about it. That's how I felt about it. Like you're building like an emotional time bomb. And if it's an emotional time bomb, the explosive material in there is the emotion. So what's going to explode eventually is the emotion. And that's kind of how I kind of felt because I never shared things, and I didn't realise that other people feel the same way about some things, I was holding on to an emotional time bomb. And then I want to ask you, if you had a, a real bomb that had a fuse on it, and you didn't know when it was going off, and you put it down on the floor, what was the next thing you'd do? Run like buggery? Yeah. So that's kind of what I spent a lot of time doing. So if I felt something that was shame, and I was afraid it was going to explode because I didn't know what might trigger it, I'd put it down and I'd run away from it. And I'd hide around the corner. And that's fine because I'm around the corner, but when it blows off, it's still going to hurt my ears, it's still going to go off, and it's still going to cause damage all around me. It's an emotional time. They're the kind of things that, that I was thinking about and dealing with that I've had in, in my life. Um, and I think, coming back to the shame quite quickly, I think shame, if shame was a, if shame was a plant, my view of shame is that what it would feed on is it would be one of those plants like a mushroom, it likes dark. Conditions and the isolation. 
and if you bring it into the light, it starts to wither and die. Does that, does anybody else feel like that? With like shame, it's one of those things, if you keep it in a dark corner, hide it away, it'll grow and it'll flourish. If you bring it out to the light, then it'll stop flourishing, it'll wither away and it'll die. And I never realised, I'm 39, I don't I know what that looks like. I'm 39, and, and until I was something like 35, 36, 37, something like that, just a few years ago, I had no idea what to do with shame, other than to keep it inside, keep it in a dark corner, and let it grow. And occasionally it would go off. And so I think what I'm suggesting is that I know the subject today is loneliness, and I think there's two types of loneliness. There's isolation, which I think you know, lots of people will be familiar with over being physically alone. And then there's loneliness, which is how I came up with the, the sort of tenuous link to loneliness with my title of my talk, which is when you're lonely, even when you're surrounded by people, even when you're surrounded by people who love you, even when you're surrounded by people who care for you and tell you nice things about you. In fact, sometimes that's the worst thing they can do, tell you nice things about you. You can't believe them. You think they must be making them up. Because they're trying to make you feel better because they know you're really a bad person. So that is kind of where I was coming from with the idea of loneliness. That loneliness can be isolation, it can be being physically alone, but also loneliness, and quite dangerous loneliness, can also be when you're surrounded by lots of people, and lots of people who have shown you love, and lots of people who really care to you. And I don't necessarily think one is, is worse than the other, um, I think they're both incredibly dangerous. So is, it really, is that fair to say that you can feel really alone even if you're surrounded by people, even if you're surrounded by people who care about you? And that if you add isolation, and shame together. So if you add that loneliness and shame together, then it's a really dangerous mix potentially. So you feel alone, you feel like nobody else will understand, and you feel a lot of shame. That's a really dangerous mix to have. So that's my that's my world for a long time, and it still is sometimes. So hiding away from shame has been my world for a long, long time. And so I think I'm qualified to talk. I'm not qualified to talk about being alone. I've never. I'm very lucky in my life. I've never been. Um, really alone. I've always had family, I've always had friends, I've always worked. Um, from 16 years old I worked, so I, I've always been surrounded by people and I've always done okay at work. Not necessarily financially, but I've always done okay. I've always had people who liked me. I wasn't unpopular at school. So that's kind of my a bit of introduction as to what I'm going to try and talk about. And then what I want to do now is just talk to you a little bit about me, about sort of how I got here. So that's, that's what I'm going to try and talk about and so I kind of arrived at wanting to talk. Is that okay? So I think from the outside, as I just touched on, I think from the outside, I think my life and my lifestyle has always been relatively comfortable. I was born uh, to parents uh, who were together, and uh, we, I guess, had a reasonably comfortable life in my early years. Um, my parents divorced uh, when I was 10, 11, something like that, I can't really remember. I think the fact that I don't necessarily, I'm not able to retain when they got divorced, and I've never thought of it as a significant thing in my life, probably tells you something about the fact that it is a significant thing in my life. Because it's bound to be. Because any time there's kind of, we'll talk about this in a minute, any kind of, there's time, several sort of trauma triggers in childhood that happen, they're bound to have an effect on you, even if you don't acknowledge it, like I never have. So my parents got divorced, but apart from that, actually, most of the time in my life, until I was probably in my sort of early teens, and then when I was in my teenage years, um, I lived in relative poverty. So I lived with my dad, my brother and I, when I was eight years younger. And we lived, and probably until, uh, I started work as a YTS at 16, probably until I was sort of in my very early 20s, um, I didn't earn what would nowadays be a living wage. And I was in a family of workless, and my dad didn't work. Um, 
And again, I didn't. I wasn't unhappy day to day. So I wasn't an unhappy person. And I've never thought of myself as an unhappy person. I've always looked sunny side up. I think I like most of the time. But the one thing that was a um, a big thing for me, although I never saw it as a big thing until a, a, lot, a lot later, was that my dad was an alcoholic. And he wasn't a terrible, violent man. And he wasn't. He didn't do. We always had a roof over our heads. And until. I was 12 or 13, he always worked, and always worked quite successfully, and he was quite a function, he was a really intelligent guy. So before I talk about some of the other stuff about my dad, I just want to be really clear, my dad was a really good dad, and lots of really happy memories, but one of the real strange things to think about, for me, is that probably most of those memories for me that were really, really happy, I'm sure were happy for him, but weren't always, well, most of them probably weren't lucid, I don't think there were many times in the whole of my life until my dad died when I was in my mid-twenties, probably was 18, that, that he was sober for many days. Possibly when he was in hospital recovering from some alcohol-related illness. But day to day, he didn't do things that you see on television alcoholics do, or that people like sometimes in the services that I work in that I see do. He, you know, he wasn't ever unable to, to put a roof over his head. He wasn't ever, you know, he... he became really worthless out of illness, which was brought on by the alcoholic. So he made himself ill and then was worthless really for the rest of his life because he was, mainly because of ill health, diabetes, and that, and his pancreas removed, and all those kind of things. And the, um, when I think about my dad, the strange thing is, and I think a lot of people who've got a parent who perhaps has any sort of substance um, misuse thinks of, is all the things that you kind of normalise that just when you think about it now, you sort of think that's just mad, but it was just normal, but it didn't feel bad. Like uh, my, my, my brother and I, I can't remember exactly what age, we weren't really young, but it was uh, Christmas dinner, and my dad was a really good cook, he loved a good, really good cook, so he's going to make Christmas dinner. And he was midway, <laughs> midway through it, and he was, he was sort of was so drunk, he fell onto the sofa and just fell asleep. And <laughs> And I've never not seen that as a funny situation with me and my brother. When we talk about it, it was just like this silly, his dad, oh, dad's drunk, that's fine, he does. Um, and then the, the thing that kind of always makes life odd was us trying to make a Christmas dinner together, which actually was the experience together, was, was, was quite fun. I mean, it was a crap Christmas dinner that year. But it never occurred to me to be a really miserable or strange memory. It was just uh, one of the funny foibles of, of dad, and I didn't really think of dad as anything but dad. He's just dad, and he, he drinks quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I experienced that kind of, of childhood. So even though you've got, what you tend to find is even when you've got a high functioning addict of any kind, the environment, even when there's no, and there's never some physical violence or, or, or neglect other than the emotional neglect that always comes with an addict, um, yeah, there's, there's that emotional neglect which say will always come with an addict, but we never kind of experience that as that way, but what it will be is an unpredictable environment. It can't not be. So even though day to day dinner was on the table and myself and my brother were never absent from school, any of those things, the environment is always unpredictable and you always have to build ways to react to that and respond to that. And although my dad was never violent, he, he could be quite angry and he could get quite upset. He couldn't play games of chance. So at Christmas time we played um, card games and things like that. He would take part in any game that was a game of skill, but he wouldn't take part in any game that was a game of chance because he couldn't. <laughs> my dad couldn't handle games of chance because if he lost them, then there was no reason for it. So yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't deal with that. Um, 
But it was brilliant and truly all pursuit, annoyingly so. You play through people's suit, um, particularly at Christmas, it's spoil it for everybody else because he just go round and round the board until he got onto an orange one because he hates sport. Um, and, and then he'd stop. And then he'd get a question wrong, and then we'd have to check the encyclopedia to make sure that we knew that he was right. And he was wrong. And it was really annoying. And, um, and the power of a parent, I was thinking about this with someone earlier, the power of a parent is that I find myself today, my dad was really tells me about, I find myself today, I watch the news, and let's say they say the capital city of somewhere or something. And I'll think, have they got that wrong? Because my dad said it was somewhere else. And then I'll check, because you check. Uh, it's, you know, Wikipedia, because that's always right. And you find, bloody hell, dad was wrong. He was wrong about something, I can't believe it. He was never wrong, by the way, he was never wrong with Trivial Pursuit. He ran out of the box, he But he was sometimes wrong about stuff. And it's the power of a parent. That can, I think it's only parents that can do that, isn't it? That can make you feel like the way the world is, that they're grateful is just the way the world should be. <laughs> And so it's a real shock when you realise that they might be wrong. Um, so I never, um, I never like, had terrible sort of traumatic physical events in my life. I was very um, poorly behaved at school throughout my whole schooling, mainly through boredom. And there was, a, there was I was fortunate, but Dad taught me to read before I went to school, quite a few years before I went to school. And I suppose when I first went to school, I was reasonably prodigious. That ended quite quickly, as you can tell. But at one point in time, I was, I was normally a high achiever in the school until I just got bored and then stopped really trying um, and um, messed about a lot. But I was a classic like, in-between, and not like the ones on the TV show, but like, in-between in the sense of I've never ever been bullied at school, I never bullied anybody else, I was never the most popular or good-looking or anything like that, but I always got on with most people. I was quite happy because I messed about in class, like most people like that. And I've got lots of friends on Facebook that still tell me that. Really funny things I did at school. I'm sure we're hilarious. Um, so the, the shaping of me as a young person, I don't think it was probably dramatically different to, to, to loads of people. It's probably similar to a lot of people. The, 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 different, you know, the differences to some people might be divorced, but lots of people experience that, and lots of people have a parent who's got an addiction or, or an abuse of, of some kind. Um, and I think as well, what I really struggled with, and I do need to acknowledge, is that I did have two parents, and... and my mum, it's uh, probably hard to talk about because she's not there, my dad is, so it's, it's a bit easier. He's not going to say anything about it. But my, my mum um, has always been tremendously supportive, but you have to acknowledge that, remember, the parents divorced, I ended up living with dad. Um, and my mum's never really been good with feelings. Um, she doesn't talk about feelings that much. I think that's kind of a family thing. She's uh, fabulous in lots of ways, but I think there must have been an emotional distance there. The fact that my parents divorced, and the way that they were didn't really at the time factor to me as a big thing that happened to me until a few years later. And even then, I've never thought of it as a tremendous spike in my life. Probably tells me that there was some kind of distance there that, that, that perhaps wasn't there. The, the other thing that I never ever thought about until I was 35, 36 was that being the child of an alcoholic was a thing. So I didn't think, I thought about the things that shaped my life, the mistakes that I made. I take responsibility as an adult. You make choices in your life, you make mistakes, and you take responsibility. I think that's, that's what you do. And I don't look back and think, well, I wouldn't have done that, that would have been alcoholic, because that's not how you look at life, and you shouldn't look at life that way. But it does shape how you react to things, and it does shape things. But it never, ever occurred to me that having a dad I knew was alcoholic, um, never challenged him on his drinking, no, nobody in the family ever really did. That's, that's not what the Sullivan side of the family did either. We kind of didn't talk about stuff like that. Didn't embarrass someone. So we didn't talk about alcoholism. Or his alcoholism, 
And so it never ever occurred to me that some of the choices I make in life might have been affected by the fact that my dad was alcoholic when I was his child. Never occurred to me until um, there's an MP actually yeah, called Liam Byrne, who, who's done a lot of work around um, childhood children of alcoholics uh, down in Westminster, and they've set up a, a parliamentary group, and I went to the Montreal Manifesto. And there's a room for the people who are children of alcoholics, and I thought, bugger me, they think the same way as me on things. They think about loads of things the same way as me. They, they might, there's perfectionism, and that doesn't mean perfectionism for anyone who actually knows me and works with me doesn't mean you get you can get everything right and you, you work, you get all the details right and all that kind of stuff. I'm not really a details person. But it does mean you, you tend to do one or two extremes. You're obsessed about something and get it absolutely spot on, or you just completely neglect it and say goodbye to it because that's perfectionism. Actually, it's not about that thing that you're obsessed about being exactly as you want it to be. The perfectionism, people pleasing, is a very common trait of people who um, and as well as people pleasing, there's a kind of link to that with um, not wanting to upset people, um, but also a real strong antenna for somebody else's disapproval. So I don't know if anybody in the room has, has had this, but if you've got a, a, an addict parent, one of the things that I've found very common with people is that they have a real strong sense when somebody else is disapproving of them, even if it might not be true, but certainly when it is true. You sense it really, really quickly. And you can sense when someone's over it, uh, even if they're not correct. Um, so you can pick that up. So there are common things, and they obviously affect the way that you do things. So I find it hard to say no when I'm asked to do stuff, so I take on too much. And most of the problems, and I'm not, I'm not a bad person, I, I, I think that now, but I'm not necessarily always thought like that, but I don't think I'm a bad person. I think I'm a good person, and I try to do lots of things for people. I don't want people to be And the times of my life when I've had the most difficulty have been the times of my life when I've taken part of um, But that is a trait. It isn't the responsibility of my dad and, and, and his choices, but it is a trait of people who experience the same experiences. But like I say, most of my childhood was, was reasonably mundane. I'm always late as well, by the way, because I'm an optimist. Underneath it all, because I always want to put things sunny side up, I don't want to look at bad things. I want to look at the good things. I'm always like, uh, it's a Tid's optimist, by the way. Is. But I, my way of describing it, which is completely, <laughs> which is not really fair, is that I'm an optimist. So I always think I'll get there on time. Today, actually, it was on time. But I'm normally late for everything. Um, and that's, I think, but I do think that shows my kind of bias towards optimism and uh, positive. Anticipating beyond all hope. So even whatever I have done to accomplish a certain outcome, Believing that the best outcome can still happen. So even though all my input along the line has been to make something go wrong, I still believe right to the last second that I might be able to make it go right. So if I ignore that work, if I ignore that bill, I was running a business, I was really terrible at running a business. Um, really awful at running a business. I shouldn't have run a business. But I felt like it was something I should do. Um, the main reason I was bad at running a business was because I didn't I don't value money that much. You kind of have to value money, not in a materialistic way, but you have to understand and value it to run a business because you have to count the pennies again, but it makes you got nothing. <coughs> and running a business, I just didn't do that because I had more time that I could give to other things. So I was involved in politics, I was involved in feedback and mental health, I was involved in supporting people, and those things were more important to me than earning enough money, at first for myself and eventually for the whole business. So it, unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't cost me financially as much as it might other people. But it was, a, it was a big mistake for me to, to make. 
But part of the, the problem for that was that I would get to a situation where I knew that I wasn't going to pay X. So the best way to do is if I haven't opened a letter, then it hasn't happened yet. So I don't have to worry about it. But I know exactly what's in that letter. I know exactly what's in that letter. And when I can't sleep at night, I still know exactly what's in that letter in my desk at work. But I still think it'll be okay. Because I still think I can make it okay. I can talk my way out of it or do something. And so that happened quite a lot, and then eventually people say, I'm not going to wait very much longer. <laughs> I'm going to wait very much longer for this money. And so I prioritised making sure the people who worked for me got paid all the time over everything else. And of course that's the right thing to do morally, but actually when you run the business you have to make tough decisions. And I wasn't prepared for that. That would have been very nice to be doing. I was in the position where I wanted to be like that nice to be. So that kind of built up and that, that didn't help and I wasn't a, a good person to, to, to run a business. And part of my problem, part of the reason for that was because of this optimism, because of the sunny side up thing, and it is a trade. It's not my dad's fault that I was bad at running a business and, and it went under, because a lot of the classic things that happened to me along the way were traits that lots of people who had a childhood like mine experience. Does that make sense? Like, it feels a little bit like that. I just want to quickly touch on, um, if anybody's ever heard of, I don't know, but there's things called um, ACEs. They're childhood trauma events, um, adverse childhood events. And there's lots of studies, and people can explain them more than me. But what it means is, if you have any four of about a dozen of these things, and they're related to abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, um, and those kind of things. So we don't have to be at to high level. So alcoholics don't just come from families that are poor and affected lower stuff. And divorce doesn't just happen in churches. And neglect, emotional neglect, doesn't just happen in families who've had physical abuse and those sorts of things. They're really difficult for people to look at because they affect people right away across the spectrum. So they affect people who've got nice, comfortable lives who don't want to be troubled by thinking about the effect they might have on their children. So it's really challenging stuff to look at, but I encourage you to do so. Someone who adds up four of those things, and I kind of added up them for myself. So I had. Um, divorced parents, an alcoholic parent, which means I had an emotionally neglected parent. I'm not going to tell you if I added up more than four or not, but it was, it was certainly out of three. If you have four of those, you've got 12 times more chance that you'll commit suicide later in life. 10 times more likely to, to take drugs. Seven times more likely to be an alcoholic. Twice as likely to have heart disease. Two and a half times more likely to have cancer. One and a half times more likely to have diabetes. Because childhood trauma is toxic. It creates physical reactions in your body that last a lifetime. So your response to whole flight or fight stuff and stuff that happens in your brainstem, that's built up in childhood and that lasts forever. So if you're more prone to feeling anxious about stuff, those chemicals are the same whether you're anxious about the Bengal tiger jumping through the window or whether you're anxious about your body, you feel the same, your body will feel the same chemicals. So that's, that's how that works. I'm just touching on that because I think it's a, a campaigning point that Something like 90% of mental health is built up in childhood. 7% of mental health budget is spent on children. Not only that, but children are the only people in society who are accessing a universal service virtually every day lives. So the opportunity to get involved early is never any better than with children. They're, they're in schools. They're there. They're a captive audience to help with this. 7%, 7% of what we spend on the spend. Early years stuff. 
so I'd never faced the effects of, of, the, of being a, a, a child of, a, of an addict. And just being a child of an addict, that was over ACEs, means you're twice as likely to have school problems, three times more likely to commit suicide or to attempt suicide, five times more likely to have an eating disorder, and four times more likely to be alcoholic yourself. And suicide is, is three times more likely if you're the child of, of an alcoholic. And, and I think there's a reason why people that men are so at such high risk of suicide, and particularly when you've got these kind of things going on, it's because ultimately I think, and I'm, if you think I'm wrong, tell me now, there's something pragmatic about deciding to try and commit suicide. Because if you've got your male brain engaged, it's the argument between two partners. One is upset about something, and what they want is to be heard and validated. They don't need a solution. It's an argument I have had with Elaine over the years lots of times. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to work out well, what practically we do. It's like, I don't want that. I just want you to hear me. I don't need a solution. So that side of the brain's emotional. But the, I say male side, it doesn't necessarily mean men, but I think male thinking in that traditional sense is very pragmatic. So I think if you reach a conclusion that says the world is better off without me and you're a pragmatic person, there's actually, any, there's actually a very simple answer to that, isn't it? Is that true? That actually, if you reach a conclusion, you genuinely, you genuinely believe it, not, not to cry for help, but you genuinely think this world is better without me than it is with me. There's actually a pragmatic solution to that, isn't there? I'm not saying it's a good solution. <laughs> I'm not saying people should do it. But there is a pragmatic solution to that, especially if you think in a very kind of practical way. Um, I've never, ever talked about this before, and I didn't know if I would, but I think I probably should. In, in, my, in my life, there were three occasions when I tried to take my life. None of those occasions did I ever um, doubt that that was my intention. That was what I wanted to happen. I didn't ask for help afterwards. I didn't go to a doctor's or hospital to make sure I was okay. And I didn't tell anyone that I'd done it. So my outcome was really just clear. The first two times that I did it, the actual actions that I took weren't even close to creating that. That was out of ignorance rather than out of intention. So I, you know, when I was 16 or whatever it was, 17, I didn't know how many tablets you needed to kill yourself. So I didn't take that. So it wasn't even close. And similar the second time. But the, the third time, and this is when I lost the business, I couldn't face shame. Because that's a really public shame. When you don't want people to think you're a bad person, and you place yourself in a position where you can be judged literally by what people see and your business closes down, that's a real big shame to deal with. And I couldn't face it. So I dropped the time bomb and I ran away. And I'm not, I don't know the exact number, but I was fairly pragmatic about it. I know, I know enough to know that you can't go to a supermarket and buy 100 paracetamol. They won't say that many. They'll sell you two, and so will Tesco's, and so will the other ones. So if you drive around lower stuff half an eight, you can get 60 or 70 paracetamol. So I made a pragmatic decision, and it feels difficult to think about it now because I don't think like this anymore, but there was, the pragmatic decision was, actually, there's no way the world could be better. I'm a bad person. The world can't be better with, with me than it is without me, so I, just, I need to go. Even though I have people around me who care about me and love me and all that kind of stuff. And so I drove around, I took 60-something, whenever it was, of these tablets, and I parked up, <laughs> parked up, 
and, and I don't know what happens next because it, unfortunately I've never um, died. But um, I, I was waiting for something to happen, and then nothing happened. I thought, well, <laughs> this isn't working. And, and I waited and waited, and still nothing happened. And then I realised that my son would get home from school and that I wouldn't be there. So he would be afraid. He'd get himself in the door, but he would be afraid. Okay, so I need to go home, and then I'll tell him I'm not well, I'll go to bed, and I'll wait till I die. Then he won't be as worried, at least in the short term, because I'll be prepared to be with him. And I didn't tell him, and then my wife got home and didn't tell her, and then I waited. And I was a little bit sick during the evening, and I think that probably helped. Um, and by you know, the grace of God, it, whatever, it, what I intended didn't happen. And there was no lasting effect of what I did. I was very lucky. But I didn't tell anyone the next day, when if I had done serious lasting damage to myself, something might have been done. It was a couple of days later. So I still, my intent was still in the back of my mind, this might still work. And it took me a couple of days. It took a lot of kindness. It wasn't until you get text messages from people, and people say, it's fine. You know, other people who you think are great, and they say, well, I had a business of that. So that happened. Well, that's not, you're a really good person. That happened to you. And so it was a, it was a strange situation. But what, what but I, I want to be really clear. I've never, ever had a period of depression. I've never had months or days or even a week at a time when I've, I've felt that I, didn't, that I didn't get up in the morning, that I wasn't able to go to work, face the world. I've never had bouts of, and I've never, ever had treatment for mental health. I haven't got any mental health condition. I don't think I've got a mental health condition. I just made that decision on three occasions. But there was nothing to kind of warn about it. It was all to do with shame. It was all to do with the fact that my upbringing meant that I couldn't face shame. I couldn't deal with it, and I had nowhere to go with it. So you ended up with this awful decision that you made. I had absolutely no choice in, in kind of my mind. And addiction, and I think this then is passed on to the children about it, addiction is a perfect system. Whatever else it is, it's a perfect system for there's something that you should be looking at or dealing with or thinking about that you don't want to. And addiction is the absolute perfect system for not doing the thinking about stuff that you should think about. It's all you can focus on that. And I think it's then passed on. And I spent a lot of my life not thinking about stuff that I should have been thinking about. And even after hitting that, the, the wall, if you like, the second time, I still didn't face the real underlying stuff. So even, even though I kind of, you know, it, it scared me, and I knew that I hadn't wanted to die, actually, I still didn't change a lot of my responses. I still wasn't able to face things like shame. And it wasn't, it wasn't a cry for help either. It's not really clear. There's no, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't looking for anybody to, to help me or change my mind or anything like that. But what, the only time my life changed, and it wasn't very long ago, was when I went down to London, I went to this meeting, and there were other people in the room who were also children of alcoholics, and they thought the same way as me. And for the first time, First time in my life, I realised that I wasn't actually a bad person. Because deep down, that's what I thought about myself. That, that's actually what it was. Deep down, throughout anything else, I thought that I was a bad person. And so there was a set of things that took place that really helped me. I was going to this Nicoa meeting, like anybody who's got any experience of, of, of being a child alcoholic or partner, I would encourage you to get involved with Nicoa, they're a great charity. Um, and there were silly little things. I remember hearing a, um, did anyone, anyone listen to Desert Island Discs? Listen to more Radio 4, Radio 4 will make your life better. 
Desert Island Disc, and it was um, Bear Grylls. And one of the songs he chose was Amazing Grace. And I've heard Amazing Grace, I like Amazing Grace, it's a nice hymn song. But I never knew the story of it, I don't really know the story of Amazing Grace. It was written by a man who was a friend of William Wilberforce, and it was written by a man who was a slave trader. And the reason that he wrote it, and his epiphany was a religious one, but he was a slave trader, so he sold African people to white people into slavery, and he traded them. And he suddenly realised what an awful thing this was to do, and he realised that he must be one of the worst people that could possibly be, and that he, well, again, his life wasn't worth living, he was a bad person. And then he, in his life, had this epiphany, and the epiphany was that even somebody like him could be saved. He heard the Amazing Grace, and that's where the song Amazing Grace came from. The song Amazing Grace, I think it's a great song, and it came from someone who felt so ashamed of themselves that they couldn't think that they could be anybody worse, and then they realised that even someone like them could be saved. And actually he worked quite hard with William Wilberforce to uh, close down the slave trade, if not slavery, and eventually, of course, the emancipation of the slaves in Britain, and, and which was... William Wilberforce's life's work. And, and so I think I heard that, I heard that story and I thought, when you judge yourself, you, you see like a spectrum, you think, oh, you're a good person or you're a bad person, now I'm, I'm a bad person. And then somebody said to me, well, who, who do you think are bad people? Do you think, who's a good person who's a bad person? Do you think you're as bad as Adolf Hitler? Well, no, actually, I don't. I don't think I'm as bad as Adolf Hitler, so let's put Adolf Hitler here as, you might think someone worse, but I think it's pretty so let's put Adolf Hitler. So you're not Adolf Hitler. Are you, uh, you know, a, a Nazi prison guard? Well, no, I'm not as bad as that. Are you Mother Teresa? Well, I'm not Mother Teresa. Yeah. Who are your heroes in life? And for me, heroes, I don't know, but heroes are always really uh, Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, people like that were people who inspired me when I was young. That's why I like politics, because of Bill Clinton and politics in that sort of era. Is he, is he, really, is he a perfect person? He's made terrible stupid mistakes. Is he that much better than you? But you see him as a good person. You see him as like almost a, say, hero or something to look up to. So actually, he's somewhere near you. And that's a really weird thing to realise, isn't it? That actually, I thought he was a bad person. And all these people I look up to, they're somewhere in the middle like me. And they just like me. And they make mistakes. And so it's, it's, always, it's always a good idea not to judge yourself. I think that's, that's what I found. And then there's, there's two... Sort of last little things I'll, I'll say about things I've learned because I'm aware that I've probably run out of time. Um, the other one was about um, life. There's no saying life isn't about what you know, it's about who you know. Has anyone heard that one? But I don't think that's true. I think there's another bit to it. Life isn't about what you know or who you know, it's about who is prepared to say that they know you. Does that make sense? So it's okay having those people who know you. But unless they stand there and say, he's all right, she's all right, there's no point knowing them. They're the people that make the difference. The people stand up and say that they know you. Your character reference in life. Your character reference in life, yeah, absolutely. So, and they also make you feel a bit better about yourself. And then the last, uh, the last thing, I'm nicking this from someone, so if I find out about this, I'll have to apologize. But I saw this a few weeks ago. Someone told me this about how you walk through life. And they were saying, you walk through life this way, walk through life backwards. Because you can only look back at what's happened. You can't see what's coming. And so if you're going to navigate and not trip over the flip chart or the cable or anything else, you need something to guide you, 
And if all that's guided you in the past is fear and shame and avoiding things, then that's not going to give you a very good compass, is it? The compass is probably a good idea. But the other good idea is probably someone who can see around you and make sure that they navigate around the table. And that can be anything. If that's your God, that's fine. If that's your friends, if that's your beliefs in anything, that's fine. But you do need that. You need people around you who can help you navigate through life. You walk back and through and look, what's been? Otherwise, you, you know, you'll never cope with what's to come. You won't even, you're never going to see what's going to come. You can predict it. Now, you compass, you can know what direction you want to go. You can know you want to be a good person from now on, but you can't see that cable. You need someone around you, and you need a belief, and you need a system. So I want to come right away back to kind of where I started, and that is just about the idea of people being at most risk when, when they don't know there's other people just like them. And that's where I think what we're doing at the minute, we tried last year, we, we set something up called Community Race and Mental Health. And we started off, we started off thinking about it as, as communities being friendly towards about mental health, mental health friendly communities. And we realised that that was wrong because what it does is it says there's a community over here, people with mental health over here, and you've got to say hello to them and make them feel okay. It's not actually about making the community stronger, is it? If you've actually one community, and it's embracing people from these different backgrounds. And you can say you probably the same about race and religion, colour, and whatever you want. But I'm choosing to make it about mental health. But isn't it the case if we if we embrace people, we a we learn from them, we can be safe enough to tell them that we've experienced stuff too, and felt it's felt safe to take them back. Then some of those people will feel that it's okay for them. They won't feel like they're the only person who feels that feeling or worries about that thing. And if they do that, you might actually save people's lives. Isn't that true? We could actually leave here, we could make meetings and race and mental health a really good thing, and we could save people's lives. But a really simple thing, the really simple thing is by making them see that they're just like you. That you worry about things, and it might not be the exact same thing, but you worry about things and you have fear. And it's okay to say that you worry about stuff. It's okay to say that you've done something that you might feel shame about. And we'll be a better community, a better society, because we've got people in it who have made mistakes, done things that they feel bad about, and prepared to talk about it, that we are, we never have those people in the first place. So actually, your past is a great guide to people to help them be better in the future. And so I think community embrace and mental health, it's, it, I'm really passionate about it because it's not a project, it's about people. It's not structure, it's a feeling, it needs people, it needs people like Fran and Denise and Malcolm and it needs people, maybe it needs people like me as well, it needs people who are prepared to say, to stand up and say I struggle with stuff, even if it's small stuff, but especially if it's big stuff. I was talking at a table the other week and there was a um, psychiatrist there and he was really great, he was really open, but what I said to him was your job must be stressful. Every day you meet people, you talk about their mental health, it must be stressful to have your job, to sit there and you're making decisions, and some of them will be wrong, and they will make people not get better. And sometimes they'll make people better, and hopefully most of the time it wasn't. But that must be stressful. But most of the time when you sit and share a space with people, your position isn't as a peer. You aren't, you aren't sharing the idea that you find things stressful or difficult or you worry about stuff. But how incredibly powerful would it be if people in those positions could share space with people who are service users or just people who experience mental health in a way that's hurtful to them and hear that someone like that worries about stuff. 
that they can still be powerful, they can still hold great jobs. They can still, the Chancellor the other week held a budget, buggered that whole thing up by those accounts, but that's you know, not my judgment to make. But that must have been stressful. But what would happen to him if he stood there and said, I'll tell you what, guys, there's no money. I know what we're going to do, and this has been the worst week. I haven't slept all week because it's been really stressful. He'd get absolutely caught with it, wouldn't he? But if people in those kind of positions, and maybe not the chance, if people in those kind of positions are willing to say that they worry about stuff that might make you worry, and that's an incredibly powerful thing, and that's something we've got to try and make happen a lot more. So it needs, I think it needs to start from rooms like this, and we need to go out there, and we all need to be less stigmatised ourselves, like I have been and we need to be more open, and we need to share stuff, and we need, I think, especially professionals, to not worry that just because they tell us that they worry and they find stuff difficult and they've had those experiences, it won't make us trust them less as a professional. It might make, make people trust them more. And, and I've got no, by the way, there's no criticism, I've got no agenda. I've worked with the best people I've ever worked in my life. And I've worked with brilliant people when I was in newspapers and in radio, but I've never worked with better people than NHS people and people in Home League and Stone. And the people that we also work with within our property. I've never known better people. But it's still really, it still would be really powerful. It still could be better if you heard those kind of messages. So I know if I'm coming to a natural close, I'm not, I know I've run terribly over time, but I'm always late, so I didn't take that. Um, but I would really just encourage people to, to talk more about stuff, to share more stuff, try and engage with us in, in communities of race and mental health, and change the world because it's actually not as hard as it sounds. It starts with one person having a conversation with the people. So thanks very much for your time. I'll come to finish.